Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Today's episode of Commons is brought to you by BorrowWell.com. BorrowWell.com provides regular monthly monitoring of your credit rating for free. BorrowWell's job is to help you stay on top of your credit score every month for free and help you improve it over time. To get your credit score for free in three minutes, go to BorrowWell.com slash commons. Today's episode is also brought to you by The Golden House, the new novel by Salman Rushdie, set in modern-day New York and kicking off at the start of the Obama presidency. The Guardian says Rushdie puts his finger on the nationwide identity crisis in this novel of race, reinvention, and the different bubbles of U.S. life. The Golden House is now available in bookstores from Random House Penguin. So I'm recovering from a pretty epic wedding this morning. Uh, Not my own. Congratulations, Emma and Dan. I'm also recovering from a wedding that I went to last night, though it was done at a respectable hour. I don't believe in the institution of marriage. So, I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Ashley Chinati. And I'm Hadia Rodrique. From Canada Land, this is Commons. Okay, so it's crowdfunding season here at Canada Land headquarters. We only do this one month out of the year. And, you know, we'd like to give all the staff but Jesse a raise. Poor Jesse. <laughs> this year we want to do even more and something really cool that you're supposed to be involved in, Ryan. 
Yeah, we are going to try to dig into the city of Thunder Bay. On this very show, we've covered Thunder Bay a few different times and have followed that story and have promised uh, to do more. And we identified it as a priority here as a company to dig in even deeper in the spirit of serial or S-Town or Crime Town. We wanted to dig into what's actually happening in Thunder Bay. There's so much to talk about in Thunder Bay. Uh, The mayor is up on charges. The chief of police is up on charges. Dead indigenous youth keep showing up in the river. There is a long, sordid history of problems inside of that city. So we've talked about this, the issue of what the heck is going on in Thunder Bay before on this show. There has been, you know, some media coverage, a few long form pieces. Uh, CBC has been on this story, but it hasn't seemed to have quite popped the collective consciousness in the same way as we put it once on this show it would if all of a sudden there were a bunch of teenagers showing up dead you know off the coast of vancouver or in the don valley river in toronto so ryan what will this do that's so different i'm from northwestern ontario and i have friends and family that live in thunder bay um and i have Uh, worked in Thunder Bay for the last 20 years of my life uh, and have uh, made great relationships with people there. And what strikes me is that I feel like we can tell a story that perhaps has not been told, one that is both human, but also one that, that shines a balanced light on all of the problems. And so these problems are political, they are systemic, and there is some blame probably to put on to the indigenous community. And I feel like by us being a part of telling this story, we will have a unique access, a unique point of view, and a unique story to tell. And it is gonna be uh, very difficult to do that. And that's why we need uh, support. It's going to be something that we are going to do um, with vigor, uh, something that we are going to do with delicacy to the issues and the historical issues and the ongoing issues inside of a city that sometimes gets an unfair rap. There are many Thunder Bays across this country. And um, we're turning to Patreon and our paid membership to support us in this endeavor. This can really only happen with your support. We've had a ton of great feedback on the idea so far. People are already reaching out to us with their stories. Uh, It's a story or a series of stories that really needs a deep dive and some deep attention. And certainly nobody's thought to turn it into a podcast yet. And we are deeply committed to telling this story, but we can only do it with your help. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and pledge your support. It can be a dollar, five dollars, seven dollars, ten dollars, you're feeling like a high baller, twenty dollars a month. And if we hit our goal, we start work on this. Make it happen. All right, guys. So Quebec made it illegal to wear, well, as the minister put it, really big sunglasses and other face coverings in public when trying to access public services in a bill that passed the legislature last week now. So this is being interpreted, you know, logically as something that's actually done to target women who are wearing a niqab or a burqa when they're trying to access public services. Now that would include everything from university campus to potentially transit. We've had women who wear the niqab already come out in media articles and say, essentially, well, I'm just not going to be able to take the bus now. I don't have a car. But the minister involved, Stephanie Vallée, has gone so far as to say, oh, no, 
it couldn't possibly be just about the niqab because it's going to be all face coverings. For some reason, it's about street protests because there's just an epidemic of people donning um, balaclavas and rampaging the streets of Montreal and big sunglasses. I Apparently, wear I wear oversized Ray Bans. Not allowed. Not in allowed. Montreal. Like if you got those like big Jackie O sunglasses. Prada. I'm a Prada girl. You know, you know the ones I'm talking about? Yep. There's like big ones. Bay round. Apparently they qualify. Although for some reason, I don't think the bus drivers are going to be too worried about people wearing sunglasses. And what happens when it's negative bajillion in the middle of February and everybody's Covered bundled with up? with a scarf I mean, and your hat. My face isn't, you sh- can't I'm see not my face. showing my face. Like it's cold out. Do not send your kids out bundled up <laughs> in the dead of winter in Quebec. Because God damn it, they're not getting on this bus. <laughs> so, of course, bus drivers are really confused. They don't actually know what this means for them. Uh, Montreal Mayor Denis Coderre has already said, you know, we need clarity for our transit services about what this bill means. And what I find so fascinating about this is the whole reason Philippe Couillard is premier and the Liberals won power is that in the last Quebec, you know, election, a big issue was this so-called values charter that would have prohibited someone who's providing or receiving public services from wearing you know, any kind of religious symbol. So it could be a kippah, it could be, you know, a cross necklace that's overt. It had to be overt though. So it was like, there was like a size of a cross necklace that was okay and not okay. Like hijabs were not okay. But anyway, it was, they had this weird poster that went with it and it became this big national discussion. And everybody's like, this is ridiculous. It furthered this idea that Quebec is inherently more racist than the rest of the country, which I think is that's a whole other issue I don't want to jump into today because I think it is a little bit of a myth. But I do find it so fascinating that they keep trying to use this guise of secularism to do something that's very clearly targeting certain groups. And so we have one party that actually took power off of the protest of another party trying to do something super, super similar. And in a lot of ways, this one's almost worse because it's targeting very specific religious coverings and they're pretending it's about secularism even more and they're also pretending they're going to provide some kind of accommodation so what do you go apply for like i'm a genuine muslim card because we've all seen that show play out before and it's not good i think also of note is the way trudeau has completely backed off the issue no one no one wants to touch this and everyone is kind of throwing their hands in the air or there, there have been these stock answers created around the question. And it's easy to say, well, no, telling anybody what they can and can't do uh, in terms of what they wear on their bodies is bad. Okay. Well, that's easy to say. But in support of the bill or speaking out against the bill, everyone is distancing themselves from this thing. And I've been really disappointed in both Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh. Because Trudeau got a lot of points off off of openly condemning the idea of the niqab ban when Stephen Harper was floating it. It was a big boost for him during the federal election. As liberal leader, he was very vocal against what Pauline Marois was proposing in Quebec. And all of a sudden, when he's not just, you know, the leader of the third party, all of a sudden he's prime minister, that special nature of Quebec and respecting the provinces seems to matter so much. And D, Jagmeet Singh gave us the best answer of all four of the NDP leadership candidates when we asked them about this issue. All of a sudden, he's leader and... He's like, oh, but the special, I, I, everybody has to wear what they want to wear, but 
the special nature of Quebec. It's like, but Quebec is different, right? It's not like they're France where the secularism is enshrined in their law in the same way. Like it's still secondary to the charter. I mean, and they also have their own charter. Like, so there's a Quebec charter and then there's the Canadian charter. But it doesn't respect either Quebec's charter or the Canadian charter. Right. Of course not. And I think this is rife for challenges. I think that we will see one. I think it's really interesting that in Ontario, all members of all three parties condemned this. Like, you don't often see provinces condemning each other's moves because they're sort of, you know, their own little fiefdoms, right? And Patrick Brown, to his credit, the leader of the provincial conservatives or the progressive conservatives in Ontario, has said Ontario should join and support any challenge that should come to this law. And I mean, good for him. So tell you you had mentioned uh, earlier this idea of disallowance. Mm -hmm. So can you break that down for me a little bit more so I better understand it? Right. So the last time there was actually this debate, there was this discussion of if they did do it, is it something that the federal government could invoke disallowance for? Which is like this obscure clause in the Constitution. Yeah. So, and what this clause allows the federal government to do is to say mm, no to a province when they want to, you know, pass a certain bill. There's also a sense that theoretically the queen, or in this case, her representative, the crown, could withhold signing of a bill. So the governor general could instruct a lieutenant governor to not sign something, which would be separate from the federal government actually doing it. But they're both sort of forms of disallowance. And this is essentially a no-no. Like and the, this yeah, and like, so, it, the, you know, people love to have these constitutional what-ifs when you read, you know, this is still there and this, you know, in, in the act and whatever. But it hasn't been used since the 1940s. Basically, it would be against convention. And we've talked a little bit on the show about unwritten and written conventions uh, in this country. It would be against convention for the feds to do it. So really... Trudeau invoking disallowance for something like this would create a whole constitutional crisis. It's not the way to go. It'd make a great TV show. It'd I mean, like I'd watch it. CBC. Watch. I'd watch a show called Disallowance. Let's have a constitutional <laughs> crisis. Um, me and like five other people. But it doesn't mean that he can, as the prime minister, use his his version. I mean, our bully pulpit. We don't like to call it that, but it is one. And it doesn't mean that he. He should be coddling, you know, Quebec's little sensitivities about being a special snowflake. And he, of course, let's that's, talk about the That's going to get you email right there. I know. That's the line. So one thing I want to point out, though, this is not just a Quebec versus the rest of Canada thing. There are a lot of activists and voices um, who are organizing against this, who are resisting this. There are Quebecers who are outraged Mm -hmm. and who are organizing against this mess. So you have both the candidates in the Montreal mayor election who condemned this. So both uh, Dennis Coderre and uh, Valérie Plante. You've got the Union uh, de Municipalité de Québec, who speaks for Quebec's municipal governments across the province, who are saying the bill is inapplicable. The Montreal Bus Drivers Union says it doesn't want the bill. You've got Quebec's Federation of Women, um, which I believe is the country's largest feminist organization, um, who's saying that they condemn this strongly. Uh, you've got Quebec Solidaire, who's voted against it. You've got protests happening at, at metro stations and outside of bus stops. You've got even bus drivers. There's one bus driver who covered his face while he was driving. And and this is, you know, what I said earlier. I, don't, I think it's a bit of a myth when we say Quebec is more or less racist than the rest of Canada. I think it does have a very different opinion of its of its role within Canada, which is why the prime minister, while campaigning in a Quebec by-election, was so 
careful in saying he respects the unique nature of Quebec. Like, I, I, I honestly wonder if the response had been different if he wasn't in the middle of campaigning in a by-election race in that province. And going back to your question about, you know, whether Quebec secularism is really that different from French secularism, especially because the French one's a bit more legally enshrined. I mean, culturally, I think it is really important in Quebec. And I don't think we should underestimate that. A lot of people like to toss off that there is a cross hanging in the National Assembly. And a cross on top of the giant hill. (laughs) In Montreal. (laughs) That lights up. (laughs) I mean, you know, but there is a very real rejection of religion in the public sphere in that province that I think comes from a place that in historical context, there was an outsized role for the Catholic Church in their society until the Quiet Revolution. So I I don't think we can underestimate the role of secularism. And I think slamming the idea of secularism in Quebec doesn't help this argument. I think what does is seeing people stand up for women's ability to wear what they choose and the law to not dictate that. I saw this message on the Facebook wall of a feminist scholar that I know, Emily Nicola. It's a Vanier scholar as well. Um, And she said, the day provincial parliaments start condemning racism in their own institutions as fast as Bill 62 is the day that the country will be a much better place. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There's stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode of Commons is brought to you by Borrowwell.com. Borrowwell.com provides regular monthly monitoring of your credit rating for free. Now, you need credit in this world to apply for a mortgage, to get a loan, to rent an apartment. And if you're not paying attention to what's going on with your credit rating and the way it could potentially spike or bottom out, you're in trouble. And both of you have experience with this. Yes, my credit is very, very precious to me. (laughs) Um, I've been the victim of someone stealing my credit card out of my mailbox and running up a you know, extensive uh, amount of debt at the liquor store and the gas station and Walmart. Original. Yes. And I've also been the victim of Canada student loans, losing all of my personal information on a hard drive. Hey, me too. Yay. Yay. And so there could be someone out there who's got my credit info, who starts credit cards in my name. And if I don't stay on top of my credit score, I won't know until possibly it's too late. Over 300,000 Canadians are actively using BorrowWell. I like this company because they actually empower Canadians by making this information more transparent. You don't have to go into a bank to receive your credit rating. You can do so at borrowwell.com. Whether you are applying for a loan, getting a new car, renting a place, or opening up a credit card, this is an important consideration in your life. Again, to get your credit score for free in three minutes, you can go to borrowwell.com slash commons. Hey, y'all, we are going to Vancouver. 
West Side. West Side. <laughs> <laughs> did you just say West Side? I did. Wow. Yeah. I did not know we were going to have that happen on the show. <laughs> November 17th, 2017, 6.30 p.m. That's a Friday. We are very happy to have been invited to Vancouver to do a live taping by Canroots, which uh, puts on an annual conference, um, brings together political, grassroots, and labor organizers to talk about best practices and all things in between. And you don't have to be an attendee of the conference to attend the live taping. You can go to organizebc.ca slash CanadaLand for your tickets. Again, that website for tickets, if you'd like to join us, organizebc.ca slash CanadaLand. And we'll see you November 17th at 6.30 p.m. SFU Gold Corp Center for the Arts, downtown Vancouver, in beautiful Coast Salish territory. All right, so this week on Is This a Thing, we need to talk about Bill Morneau, Blind Truss, and the French Villa. This week we learned that Bill Morneau owns shares in his father's company, Morneau Chappelle, and those shares are worth about $20 million. He claims that the federal ethics commissioner told him he didn't need to put his assets into a blind trust. And so uh, there's been much conversation about the federal finance minister being filthy rich (laughs) and possibly being embroiled in this conflict of interest around Bill C-27. Now, the Morneau Chappelle stock jumped by 4.8% after this bill was introduced. NDP ethics critic Nathan Cullen suggests Morneau stood to profit by $2 million in just five days after C-27 was tabled. So there's a whole bunch of things we have to talk about. Mm-hmm. What C-27 was, uh, what if, if this is a conflict of interest, what a blind trust is, and... Why we get so mad when Canadians are rich? Is this an overconflated thing? Is this a thing? Is he breaking the law? Is this bad? So, I mean, it's bad because the public perception of it is that it's bad. And the finance minister should never be getting a, a fiduciary gain from any decisions that he's making. And what's really interesting here is that um, so there's this bill, this C-27, to reform workers' pension laws. So, of course, companies like Morris Chappelle are affected by it. He's tabling that. He also tables budgets, which can move markets. He's involved in discussions of, like, do we give a bailout to Bombardier? So all of his stuff should be in a blind trust. And the thing is, is there's a loophole that makes it so he legally didn't do anything wrong because he doesn't have to put everything in a blind trust, which is kind of ridiculous because we do at other levels require Hmm. more strict rules with blind trust. So, like, clearly the liberals should close this loophole and you know deal with this but i also don't think this is the kind of story that will matter long term for a number of reasons one everyone already knew the finance minister was filthy rich and they either resented him for him or didn't and that's you, why he's the fine he's good with finances <laughs> right i mean like do you minister. want a poor finance minister uh, they don't want me running the country <laughs> um and that he came from a strong financial Bay Street background. Like, that's what made him a strong person to take over the finance ministry for a government that was so green. I also think it will not be a thing in the long term because they're moving to deal with this now. I mean, if the investigation turns into a long story, it could start to take away. But I really don't see this as the kind of story that's going to pop the popular 
imagination beyond the the finance minister had a French villa he somehow didn't know about when technically he owned shares in something that owns a French villa or whatever. Like that's the kind of thing like Trudeau vacationing in the Bahamas with the Aga Khan and the finance minister having a French villa that he didn't know about are the kind of things that start to weigh on governments after a time and make people see them as out of touch, liberal elites who like to spend other people's money on their pet projects. But this one little nugget in particular of his shares or whatever, I just don't see it becoming a big story that affects votes two years from now unless it becomes part of a pattern with the government. One of the, one thing that's getting lost, a funny thing, I think, I, I don't think it's a thing. I, I, I'll, I'll rule right now. It's, it's not a thing. But a hilarious point that no one, that we forgot about right away was how JT, when he was, <laughs> when, he, when Morneau was being called out when this story first hit, the hilarious moment where Trudeau responded with, well, I'm going to answer that. I, I'm going to answer that. Now you have some time with the prime minister. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. Pulled and, up his big boy pants. Yeah, he, he has really asserted himself there. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty, pretty it was hilarious. It was hilarious, but also just a weird move. It was. And like, it was super creepy to have, like, Morneau standing there. Yeah. And like, just let him. Speak well, he took for a step himself. forward, and then took a step back when he realized he wasn't going to be given the chance to talk about it. Right. And which also, I've, so I've ruled that this is not a thing. But there's a weirdness there that yeah. maybe will follow going forward. It was just a weird communications move. That's for sure. Captain Trudeau to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> not a thing. All right, let's talk about this really upsetting, yet another really upsetting verdict involving sexual assault from Canada. What? Yeah, it must be, you know, I was going to say it must be Tuesday, but it's Saturday. Yeah. But, you know, it could be any day of the week and we'll get one of these lately. Um, and maybe we're just hearing more about them now. Okay, so this Ottawa man has been found not guilty of sexually assaulting his wife, not because the judge was in doubt of what happened or he didn't find her testimony credible but because the guy managed to convince him that he didn't think that it was against the law to rape your wife now this is something that has been a crime in canada for a long time and uh the judge's ruling here is really weird it seems to focus on the fact that he couldn't he couldn't commit a crime if he didn't know it was a crime. But of course, we know that ignorance of the law is not a defense. Now, Dee, you're the the lawyer at the table. So uh, I wanted to know what you thought of this. Caveat, I'm not a criminal lawyer. And the last time I c- took crim was in 2005. However, I did study sexual assault uh, law when I was in law school. And so what the judge found was that the accused did not have the required mens rea to have sexually assaulted the complainant. And so every crime has two essential parts. You have the action or the actus reus and then the intent or the mens rea or guilty mind. For example, in assault, the actus reus would be unwanted touching and the mens rea would be I meant to apply force to you. You are not required to know that something is illegal Mm -hmm. because, for example, I'm a lawyer. I don't even know every single law that is in the criminal code. What is just required is to show that you intended to commit the act and that you had the guilty mind or you had the intent to commit that act. So if I accidentally hit you in the face with my arm because I'm like expressing joy, I didn't mean to hit you in the face. I didn't mean to assault you. And so when it comes to sexual assault, the actus reus is unwanted sexual touching so that 
someone touch, there was sexual nature, and there was no consent. And then the mens rea is that you had an intention to sexually touch the complainant and that you had knowledge, recklessness, or willful blindness as to the lack of consent on the part of the complainant. And in this case, she recalls a specific incident where he got onto the couch uh, with her, pulled her down, like started having sex with her. She asked him to stop three times, but he kept going. And then she just closed her eyes and prayed for it to end and then took a shower. Which probably means she meant no. Well, she said no. she said it three <laughs> times. So he clearly has mens rea to me. Like, he has the actus reus, and then he intended to have sex with her and continued to have sex when she said no. So he had knowledge of her lack of consent. So I don't really understand how this judge could conclude, based on this evidence that he said was believable, that he did not have the requisite guilty mind. It almost seems like he's saying, well, he didn't know, you know, he didn't know that he couldn't, which is definitely not a defense. I mean, it just, these cases that have questionable verdict, where judges seem to be almost, you know, reaching for an argument to acquit someone, it's baffling. Like we're hitting this point where, I mean, we've talked about that, the case of the taxi driver Mm. in Halifax with the judge who said, you know, a drunk can consent. We all know what happened with Justice Camp. I mean, sometimes we're seeing in both those cases, the judicial oversight bodies did get involved. There's now a review going on in Nova Scotia as well. But I, I, I mean, that's after the fact. That's after the complainant has gone through this process, We after we've had a verdict, after these verdicts are on our books. I mean, I want to see a system where we're doing a better job of clarifying the nature of consent in the law and a better job of applying that law and a better job of raising children to have a better sense of of consent before we get there. And just as evidence of like how bad I think the judges education on this on sexual assault is so there's a defense it's called honest but mistaken belief and consent it's basically where you can say you know i actually thought that the person had said yes and to get the defense there has to be an error of reality it has to show that you've actually taken some regional reasonable steps to ascertain consent um, but those steps led you to believe that there was consent when there wasn't. And so I did a research project um, when I was in law school where I looked at 50 cases that had happened over a five-year period where this defense was used. And there's very clear sort of steps and tests and as to when this defense can be put forth and used. And I found that two out of the 50 judges did it correctly. Oh, my God. 48 judges misapplied the law in my opinion in my review of the facts so we need to train our judges better they need to actually know what sexual assault is and what the actus rea and mens rea of sexual assault is which should be pretty basic knowledge and uh, this is definitely a fucking thing that needs to be corrected that was this is a thing send us things if you have things that you want us to discuss you can find us at commons at canadalandshow.com Send us your things. So again, on comments, we want to thank our sponsor, The Golden House, the new novel by Salman Rushdie, available now in bookstores from Random House Penguin. So I was really excited when we got this book to read. It looked great. And it's the kind of book that sucks you in from the very beginning. And not only is it super relevant right now because there's this, you know, Trump 
like character that runs through the background and there's this great mystery that pulls you along and talks a lot about identity politics as this cool thing of the idea of the museum of identity which is sort of a commentary on our on our current social state in so many different ways but I also just love Rushdie's lush prose and so just from the very first sentence this book sucks you absolutely in and it's a long sentence but it's a glorious one and the book The Golden House opens with On the day of the new president's inauguration, when we worried that he might be murdered as he walked hand in hand with his exceptional wife among the cheering crowds, and when so many of us were close to economic ruin in the aftermath of the bursting of the mortgage bubble, and when Isis was still an Egyptian mother goddess, an uncrowned 70-something king from a faraway country arrived in New York City and his three motherless sons to take possession of the palace of his exile, behaving as if nothing was wrong with the country or the world or his own story. Comparisons have been drawn between this book and The Great Gatsby. Um, He's tackling some new subject matter with a return to realism as opposed to more of the magical realism of some of his previous books. Um, There are still some fantastical, rushdie, Elements, So, you know, a character with the last name of the last Roman emperor of the Judeo-Claudian dynasty, complete with a violin. Whoever could he be? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But this book is really grounded in what's happening around us. So, for example, I am someone who watched that inauguration and was really worried that Obama was going to get shot. The Golden House, the new novel by Salman Rushdie, available now in bookstores from Random House Penguin. There are few who would deny the architect behind Canada's frontline role in NAFTA was that of Brian Mulroney and his government. We are here with Hugh Siegel, who served as chief of staff for Prime Minister Brian Mulroney in 1992 and 1993, participating in the original NAFTA negotiations. As a Canadian senator appointed by PM Paul Martin in 2005, Hugh chaired the Foreign Affairs and International Trade Committee of the Senate. He is a member and now officer of the Order of Canada and current head of Massey College at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Hugh. Good to be here. Thank you. So I'm just going to dive into some questions, even though, you know, you're my head of college and it's really fun to be sitting here with you. I feel like I have to be very serious right now. Hadia, you've never been intimidated before. There's no reason to be. (laughs) (laughs) So as chief of staff, what was your role in the negotiations? The premise being that if you put all of Mexico and Canada and the United States as a trading block together, um, you get just under 400 million people with huge um, capacity, with huge labor skills and backgrounds, with great manufacturing and resource depth. And that, of course, was always about really not so much competing with Europe, because that was already going on, but really getting ahead of the Chinese issue. Was it in part also a response to sort of rising American protectionism at the time? Well, the American protectionism had been pretty much in place prior to the FTA agreement. I remember the 1987 election campaign. So that is in Ontario, and that is provincial. And that is when Mr. Peterson wins a huge majority. Uh, The conservative leader was Mr. Grossman, and I was working on his campaign. And Mulroney, Mr. Mulroney had already negotiated the, free, the FTA. It was in the marketplace. Mr. Peterson had made a opposition to the FTA as one of the sine qua nons of his campaign. And our party provincially took the position that, well, no, actually, there are now over 87 pieces of legislation in the United States Congress and Senate, protectionist, 
that would impose an extra tariff or impose an extra burden on Canadian goods and services being put into the United States, which would seriously affect jobs in Ontario. So even though it was profoundly unpopular because Ontarians were not overly enthusiastic about free trade, Larry Grossman and his progressive conservatives campaigned in favor of it. And I'll remember one moment where you know you're in trouble, when you know your campaign is kind of headed off a cliff, where the research staff for Mr. Grossman had developed, pulled out every single piece of American legislation that was aimed at jobs being uh, behind trade going from Ontario to the U.S. And we piled every of them up uh, at the podium. It was a speech in Niagara, which is a very trade-sensitive area. And Mr. Grossman made a speech about we, this, the, the, these bills here are the enemy. This is what we have to get ahead of. That's why free trade is important. That's why Ontario should be supporting Quebec and Alberta and other parts of Canada. And um, not one journalist, after the speech, went up to look at one, let alone all, of those pieces of legislation. Mm. And it wasn't because the legislation wasn't important. It was because we weren't. And it was clear that we were not going to win the election. So all, all of which is to say it was seen as the best possible way forward, both in terms of economic opportunity, also in terms of labor. Because remember, Bill Clinton got elected also campaigning against NAFTA. This is a pretty traditional American thing from the right or from the left. And um, when he got elected, what had to be negotiated was a new side letter between the Mexicans, Canadians, and Americans on issues that the Americans said were important, labor rights, euphemism for U.S. unions did not want to be losing jobs to less well-paying employee forces in places like Mexico. They didn't worry about us because our folks are just as well-paid right. Canada. So those are the things that happen. How it manifests itself with each president, of course, is different. But that's the way it manifested itself between Bush and Mr. Mulroney and then Clinton and Mr. Mulroney. Do you think that it's played out as envisioned originally? Do you mean NAFTA itself as, yeah. a, as a benefit? So no, I don't, th I don't think it's played out. I think what has happened is that those people who have concerns about it have been not only more aggressive in the marketplace of ideas, but they now have a president in the United States who made a case that he was going to get elected to unwind this thing or radically improve it, so feels very much he has a mandate to so do. Um, I have a general view about where the kind of um, dissatisfaction and alienation comes from that produces things like a vote for the far right in Germany or a vote for Madame Le Pen in France or uh, votes in some straits, states which are traditionally Democrat for, uh, for Mr. Trump. And so that challenge is, is, um, is, is people feeling that their economic prospects are diminished, they have no hope. And that really relates to our inability as a Western society to come to grips with poverty, to deal with it effectively and coherently. And um, the way we have been doing it has been so unproductive that people in large parts of the United Kingdom and France and uh, Germany and uh, the United States and Canada feel quite disenfranchised. And I think that's one of the central challenges for the whole idea of a liberal, democratic, rules-based international community. And it's something that I've cared about for some time. So what impact do you think free trade has had on income inequality in Canada? Um, the numbers are mixed. So for the well-educated, actively involved in uh, various parts of the economy that are themselves quite advanced, it's been good. The increase in trade, the increase in gross 
um, domestic product, the increase in actual earnings for people in those kinds of jobs has been quite substantial. For those people at the other end of the spectrum who are not terribly well educated, uh, they've had to compete with uh, global input costs in other parts of the world, which are simply less expensive. That has had an effect in the United States, and that has had an effect in Canada. So if you take a look at, depending on how you count, the 9 to 12% of Canadians who live beneath the poverty line, there is quite a overlap in that population with people with low education levels. And, and that, of course, means that the sorts of jobs they are able to get will be minimum wage jobs at best. Um, I often hear folks who oppose more generosity on that front make the case that, uh, well, you know, if you pay people not to work, they're just not going to work. To which my response is, well, 70% of Canadians who now live beneath the poverty line have a job. Actually, some of them have more than one job, but they just don't earn enough if they're living in a city like Toronto or Calgary or Halifax to meet the costs. So this is not about laziness or sloth. It's about an economic system, which is just making it very hard for some people to get ahead. And it's the sort of thing where a rational democracy would try to respond. So looking back, is there anything you would change about the deal that was made? I wouldn't change the deal, but I would have not done what Mr. Mulroney did. Mulroney, there was a Royal Commission on Canada's Economic Prospects done by Donald S. Macdonald, one of Mr. Trudeau's last acts, and it recommended free trade. It also recommended a guaranteed annual income as a floor beneath which nobody could sink because of some of the transitions that would take place as a result of free trade. So Mr. Mulroney moved on one extremely well. And then on the other, he sent it off to a very distinguished business guy in Quebec to think about and congelate. And of course, the, re- the response came back, not surprisingly, well, actually, we have unemployment insurance. We'll deal with all that. Except that two years later, unemployment insurance was cut back. And then the Krejci administration cut it back even further. So as we sit here this morning, 40% of Canadians who don't have work and would like to have work aren't eligible for employment insurance. I was in the private sector. And I was supporting free trade, but I really hoped they would have taken both parts of McDonald's recommendations. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was probably one of the largest research exercises ever done by economists and social policy people and labor economists and all the rest about choices that need to be made. Um, probably since the Royal Sirwalk Commission, which decided how we should divide up the powers between provinces and Ottawa. So um, not to take that advice, I think, was a well-intentioned, but a terrible mistake. So recently at the UN General Assembly, Trudeau stated that Canada accepts the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Uh or UNDRIP. Um, And Article 19 is very clear in saying that Canada must inform free, uh, prior and informed consent of Indigenous peoples um, before adopting any measure that might affect them. And one can say that this deal is going to impact the land, the water, and the resources and safety of First Nations in Canada. I mean, it already we've already seen um, yep. the economic and environmental implications of uh, the previous deal. Can legally then, can the, if we do adopt UNDRIP, can we go through this without having um, Indigenous leaders at the table? Well, I, I think... If we look at the trade advisory panels that existed during the Mulroney negotiation and then the NAFTA negotiation, there were consultations with First Nations who had views on certain issues. I think the effect of signing on to that UN uh, protocol is that that has to be more formalized, frankly. And in the same way, by the way, as the federal government does an agreement, there has to be ratification in the provinces. 
the notion that there is some process set up for ratification by First Nations would be, I think, appropriate. But if I may, I would argue that Mr. Trudeau has a more substantial opportunity and problem. He committed to government nation-to-nation relations with our First Nations. As long as the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development does what it does, it stands in the way of nation-to-nation relationships because it treats many First Nations as trustees. They get a separate status, uh, but they are not actually in control of their own land. They don't control their own authority. I think what we need to see, and I've said this before, is the Prime Minister bringing in a piece of legislation that says this bill repeals the Indian Affairs and Northern Development Act. It's gone. It will be signed by the Governor General the moment that our First Nations have put together a not-for-profit global corporation, which they run, they're in charge of, they're the directors, which will then be responsible for health, education, and uh, their own civic development in their own communities, and they will get first the $4.2 billion that we spend every year in Indian Affairs, plus they'll get a percentage of royalties from all the natural resource activities going on on their traditional lands which would be negotiated on a once-every-three-year basis, like Ottawa and the provinces negotiate transfers on a similar basis. Mm -hmm. Then he will have kept his word on behalf of Canadians, and the First Nations will have a challenge, but it's one I'm sure they can meet, to to manage their own affairs. And when people say, well, there may not be 6,000 water engineers who are First Nations people, First Nations run it. They can hire anybody they want as staff to get the job done. And we have an example of that. Uh, Nellie Cournoyer runs something called the Inuvialuit Regional Corporation for the West Arctic. That was based on a land agreement done with Prime Minister Mulroney. And it basically gave them the control, the Inuvialuit, of all their land and all their water and all their minerals and all their oil and all their gas, all of which flows to their corporation, members of which are elected by the Inuvialuit. Proceeds go to legacy funds for senior citizens in the community, for sending kids to college, for health care support, for all the infrastructure, which is what our First Nations have every right to have for themselves. And you can do that. That would not only not weaken Canada, that would strengthen Canada because it would be an example to the world. And I think this prime minister probably emotionally is prepared to go there, whether he can cut through the officials and the, the no gang in finance, which every government has to face, is a whole other matter. And that would be, by the way, the best way to say to the UN, we, we agreed to this and we mean it. What do you think is the worst case scenario arising out of these negotiations? The worst case scenario would be a collapse in the discussions and then the Americans issuing a series of uh, presidential orders to slap a bunch of tariffs on, which don't only violate the uh, NAFTA, but also the FTA. And while they may be pushed back in the courts or in the in the dispute settlement process, it'll produce a lot of economic disruption or anxiety and misunderstanding for a period of some weeks. It'll sort itself out, just as most of those travel bans are sorting themselves in the court in a way which is actually affirming the basic underlying principles of the American Constitution. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Commons. That was Hugh Siegel, current head of college at Massey College, former senator and former chief of staff to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Thank you. Thank you, Hadia. That's your Commons episode for this week. Thanks for tuning in. 
I'm Hadia Rodrigue. You can follow me on Twitter at D Rodrigue. That's D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y. Last name C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. And I'm Ryan McMahon. You can follow me on Twitter at RM Comedy. Follow us on Twitter at Canada Land Commons. That's Canada Land C-M-N-S. Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash canadaland. And remember to like Canada Land Commons on Facebook. And if you want to go to our live taping in Vancouver on November 17th, visit organizebc.ca slash canadaland. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. And if you like what we do, please support us. making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.